Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Sandy Springs established zoning restrictions and banned alcohol sales for strip clubs and other adult businesses in 2006. Well, our search for the origins of these laws led to a number of curious ordinances still on the books in Georgia. Here are just a few. It's illegal! It's really illegal? It's illegal? Um, um, excuse me? Is, is this allowed? It's illegal. It's illegal to give a state senator a speeding ticket when the state assembly is in session. It's illegal to cuss on landlines. Across the state, it's illegal to swear in front of a corpse. It's illegal to throw bird seeds at a bird. As it should be. (laughs) In Ackworth, you must own a rake or be sent to jail. It's illegal to use your PlayStation after 11 p.m. on a school night in Athens. I wonder if the Xbox is okay. Also in Athens, no drinking beer while getting a back rub. That might be difficult anyway. You must keep your pet chicken on a leash. In Marietta, you must be on a truck to spit. from a moving vehicle. Ew, why would you want to? The floor of a porno store must be smooth smooth and and (laughs) non-absorbent. It's illegal to have happy hour drink specials. What? I'm not sure that's a good idea. Even strippers get Sundays off in Roswell. Good for them. Everybody should take a rest. In Athens... It's illegal to fart at the state fair. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Seems like that should be illegal everywhere. Well, we cribbed a few on this list from idiotlaws.com, if that tells you anything. As obscure and seemingly silly as they are, they are still on the books. And here to talk with us about how laws get made and how hard they are to change is Tanya Washington. She's a law professor at Georgia State University. Great to have you back in the studio, Tanya. Great to be here. So let's start. Why do these kind of laws even exist? Well, a lot of laws came into being during a particular time. Right. Where it would have been necessary or it would have made more sense for the law to be created. And with the passage of time and the changes that have occurred um, over that time period, they no longer make sense, but they're still on the books, which means they are still enforceable. So what does it take to get one of those laws off of the books? Well, one way it can happen is the legislature can pass another law invalidating the existing law. Another way is for someone who is um, against whom the law is enforced to challenge it in court and for the court to invalidate it as unconstitutional. So short of a lot of money, time and will to make it happen, they're just going to stay on the books. Exactly. Exactly. So you said they're made during a particular time. Are they targeting particular people or groups of people? It could be people. It could be certain behaviors. It could be something that is perceived to be beneficial to the community at that particular time. And it's often based on um, time stamped norms. Right. And so things that may have been appropriate in the early 1900s are no longer appropriate in 2018. And we're looking at the reasonableness of the law through the lens of present reality. So it may have made sense at one point to make a law that you can't curse in front of a corpse. Absolutely. If that's based on uh, prevailing beliefs, spiritual or religious, and there was a majoritarian uh, support for that law. And it comes into being. Yeah. So somebody could conceivably be arrested 
for not having a rake, for example. Exactly. So, and that means it's left up to what, the discrimination of an arresting officer? It's left up to their discretion. And it's interesting because that then leaves room for what you referenced, which is discriminatory exercise of that discretion, right? So you you don't enforce the requirement that you have a rake against everyone, but you can against anyone. And so the person who is making that determination gets to draw on their own personal prejudices and biases in determining the person against whom they will enforce the law. Well, I'm going to pick up on that word discriminatory because some of these are seems maybe born of very racist or segregationist ideas, like particular populations get oh, targeted. Absolutely. And that, again, would be consistent with the time period within which they may have been enacted. So, for example, there is a law, you have to write your signs in English, even though, you know, there are many refugee mm-hmm. resettlement communities, immigrant communities here in Georgia. And if it is in one particular language, then you must have a translation. That seems to be clearly biased towards a certain segment of the population. So so what happens when it's enforced in one place but not another? Can the person being charged use it as a defense? You know, that they get to do it. Why don't I? That defense is rarely going to be successful. If they are determined to be, according to the facts, in violation of that law, then they can be subject to whatever penalties are attached to having violated that law. We've got a comment from a listener. Uh, Nathan Weaver says, I think back in the day, lawmakers were just more jovial and humorous with some of these laws, probably argued with each other less, too. So, example, the no farting law. It may have been a crack at somebody's... (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, that's the thing. I mean, they do sound really kind of ridiculous to us today, but there was some real, um, there must have been a real will to make it happen. Absolutely. Because they went through the legislative process of enacting it. And um, I I think that that to your, uh, to the uh, comment that was made about Um, There may have been less acrimony among legislators. We also have to remember they were largely all white men privileged um, from a certain socioeconomic background. And so there would have been less reason for acrimony. Well, let us talk about some specific Georgia laws that have baffled people recently. The first is the ordinance forbidding people from sharing food with the homeless. Now, where did that come from? So that is an old ordinance, even though it has recently been enforced. Um, And it, uh, I guess it was last year when um, the Georgia State Police and Georgia State University Campus Police started enforcing this ordinance for the first time in decades. And the public response was, oh, you've created this law. But the law was already on the books. If it's on the books, even if it's dormant, meaning it's not being regularly enforced, it still is the law. And at any point in time, someone can do a search, find a law that has not been invalidated and decide as part of their administrative policy platform that they now want to enforce this law. Tanya Washington is with us. She's a professor of law at Georgia State University. And Mm -hmm. we're talking about some of the ways that laws get on the books and stay on the books. But why enforce a law like that? I've heard justifications offered that they want to make sure that um, the homeless population is receiving 
you know, healthy food or there's quality control in terms of the distribution of food. But I think given the significance of our um, homeless population, it, it just does not make sense to fine people for sharing, essentially. Um, and it's it's something that that to me speaks well of a community when we are willing to share with those who don't have food to eat and to punish that for policy reasons that just don't justify the prohibition to me is wrong. Yeah, it almost sounds like you don't want to encourage them or something like exactly. that. Exactly. And, and not feeding them doesn't make them go away, right? It just allows them to remain where they are, except now they're hungry. Well, I do want to ask you about uh, another law that probably gets debated a little bit more, um, taxes in Fulton County. Mm -hmm. So last year there was a a tax freeze. Um, I was a beneficiary of that tax tax freeze, for full disclosure. (laughs) I was very happy about it. Um, And the Fulton County Commissioner at the time decided to use a very old law that was still on the books that allowed him to or allowed the commission to freeze taxes for a year. Um, And this was in response to the hue and cry of the public who saw their taxes doubling, tripling, quadrupling. And so in that instance, thank God that law was still on the books. And, you know, the fact that it hadn't been used in almost 100 years didn't change its enforceability as law. And it was used to provide some tax relief for the for the public. So these uh, these old laws and new laws, not always. I mean, though they're difficult to get on the books and off the books, sometimes really benefit. Absolutely. People. And I think people should just be mindful, given how difficult it is for a law to be invalidated, that we on the front end are very intentional about scrutinizing the laws that are being passed, knowing that more than likely they will be on the books for a very long time unless they are challenged. And they're of a time now. I'm sure that there are a lot of laws that are being proposed, of course, like the new hands-free law. Yes. You know, maybe we're going to look back at that and think, oh, just imagine they couldn't <laughs> hold on to the telephone. <laughs> Absolutely. This is the standard of the day. But do you think people understand the malleability of the laws when it comes to enforcing them? And do you think like the police know about it? I mean, this is a this is a code of a long list. Yes, I would. I would. I don't think the public is as aware of the processes by which um, laws are enacted. And I think we're even less aware as, as the public about how laws are invalidated. I think people think if the law doesn't make sense, then it's not enforceable. No, that just means it's enforceable and it doesn't make sense. Now, I would like to think that um, police officers and others who have the authority of the state behind their action um, are more aware of these laws. I hope that's what we are paying taxes for in terms of providing training and that they are educated about the limits of their authority and also the laws that are that they are responsible for enforcing. Okay, I missed the obvious Civics 101 question, <laughs> which is how does a law get made? Well, if we're talking about state laws, right. um, someone introduces it. Usually it is because there is a problem, right? There's some issue that needs to be solved. And we think, or a legislator who is um, elected to represent his or her constituency thinks that a law should be enacted as part of the solution to that problem. And then there's a vote and majority rules in the 
the state legislative body and in the um, at the federal level. And then the law is enacted, signed by the executive branch chief, be the governor or the president. And it is um, signed into law. And there it is ready for enforcement. So is there an obvious fix to wiping off some of these old laws on the books? There is not. What we cannot do is we cannot sit down with all of these laws and take a yellow highlighter and highlight the ones that we think are no longer relevant. Um, Again, they would have to be challenged, which means someone has to suffer some injury financial time, et cetera, through a lawsuit challenging this law. And then the court would have to determine that the law is unconstitutional. The law is invalid and therefore should not be enforced. Short of that, the legislature would have to come back and pass another law that would supersede the law that we determine makes no sense. But there's no way to do it short of legislative processes or judicial determinations. Uh, Just a short amount of time, but Is there a law you'd like to see wiped off the books? I think you should be able to purchase wine before 1230 in in Georgia. I'd like to see that law changed. As long as you've got a rake, Tanya. (laughs) Tanya Washington, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Tanya Washington is a professor of law at Georgia State University. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is On Second Thought from GPB News. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. In just a moment, we're going to talk about American media portrayed the Nazi agenda. But first, a remembrance. Eugene Schoenfeld was a Holocaust survivor who was interviewed for a GPB project collecting oral histories from World War II. He died earlier this month at the age of 93. Here he is sharing the story of how a pair of shoes lost in a concentration camp changed his life. We took our shower. We, the only item that we were kept were our shoes. And we put our shoes in a corner of a room to uh, retrieve after the shower. And so I dutifully put my shoes in the corner, took my shower, went back to the corner to find my pair of shoes. And lo and behold, somebody made a mistake, took one of my shoes and left me, say, two right shoes. I can't remember which one, right or left. But he left me a unmatched pair. And what to do now? I mean, I cannot wear shoes like this. I asked one of the couples what to do now. He says, you see that window over there? I says, yes, I do. He says, go there and knock on the window. When the window opens up, you must begin your request with the following phrase. Ich bete gehorsam, 
That's in German, it means I am humbly requesting. And then you will tell them what happened. They may give you a pair of wooden shoes. Now, a pair of wooden shoes is better than no shoes. So I go to the window, I knock at the window, window opens up. There are two people in there. One was a German SS and the other one was a couple. Now the couple under, had under his arm a stick. It would have made a wonderful Irish shillelagh. Big, knobbed, mean-looking stick. As he opened the window, before he asks me anything, he hits me over the head with the stick. Just to get my attention, so to say. <laughs> and then he says, what do you want? So I am uh, starting my request with the words that the other man said, I'm humbly requesting a pair of shoes. He didn't ask me why, what for, when, and so on. He hit me over the head and closed the door. I closed the window. I went back to my father, who was with me, and I cried. And I asked my father, why are you crying? So I told him the stories, but I said, emphasizing, I am not crying because it hurt the deuces. I mean, it did hurt. You get hit in the head, it hurts. But I was crying out of frustration. And my question to him, as I remember right now, as clearly, how is it possible that today, in the middle of the 20th century, that man is still so inhuman to man? This question has become a central question in my life and in my research and my writing in sociology. This inhumanity, this inequality, this uh, hostility, and where it comes from. That was Eugene Schoenfeld being interviewed by GPB. He died earlier this month at the age of 93. One of America's most famous photographs shows a sailor kissing a woman dressed like a nurse in Times Square after news of Japan's surrender ended World War II. Germany had surrendered a couple of months earlier. Before celebrating victory, America resisted joining the global conflict and initially stayed out of the fight against Hitler. An exhibit at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. looks at the role of Americans and the Holocaust. A traveling event focuses on how depictions of the Nazi agenda influenced American audiences and why and how we fought on the winning side. What were we watching? Americans' response to Nazism through cinema, radio, and media takes place tonight at the Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta. Michelle Taylor is board member there and former member of the United States Holocaust Memorial Council. She's with me in the studio. Michelle, hello. Good morning. Well, welcome, and thank you for being here. Daniel Green is also with us. He's an historian and curator of Americans in the Holocaust exhibit at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, and he's joining us on the line from Chicago. Hello, Daniel. Hi, good morning. So I guess the question here is, what did we know and when did we know it? The famous political question. But first, let's explore that. But I'm interested in knowing why bring this event around the country to audiences in Atlanta, for example, Michelle. 
So I think, first of all, that the Center for Civil and Human Rights is the perfect venue to bring something like this. Atlanta has this unique history, I think, of being the birthplace of the civil rights movement. And a lot of the point of continuing to tell stories of the Holocaust is to inspire people to think about what lessons they can bring forward. And we have this misconception, I think, that Americans really didn't know anything about what was happening during the Holocaust until the pictures of the liberation of Auschwitz came out. And that, that, is, that is a narrative that I've heard a yes, lot. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's just patently not true. So through this exhibit at the museum now in D.C. and this traveling uh, conversation, we are able to educate people about what people knew and what the response was and wasn't based on that information. Well, Daniel, let's dive into the history a little here. What was this sense of what was going on here in America in the 1930s as Hitler was building up German armies and holding rallies for Nazi youth? Well, Americans um, would have seen a lot of news about what was going on in Nazi Germany, but they had their own deep concerns at home. You know, Hitler rises um, to power in Germany during the during the height of the Great Depression here. There's 25 percent unemployment in the United States. Um, we have our own um, xenophobic society at the time. Um, we're, we're, we're relatively closed to immigrants under a system of, of immigration quotas that, that predates the Nazis. And we're very weary of war. You know, World War One is only about 15 years in the rearview mirror when Hitler rises to power. And if, if you had asked Americans during the 1930s, which Gallup did often, was it a mistake to enter World War One? Usually about seven out of 10 Americans would have said yes. Mm. So those combinations of fears at home um, and, and economic insecurity at home uh, deeply affect how we respond to the refugee crisis and then ultimately to learning about, about mass murder going on. Well, so loath to enter the sphere of war again in Germany, economic problems. But I'd like to hear more about this refugee crisis. Jewish refugees were actually turned away from the U.S. at that time. Can you fill us in on the history there? Well, it's not exactly that they were turned away. We, we, we live in the 1930s under an immigration quota system um, that allows a very limited number of immigration visas to be issued each year. But the key, one of the key things that we teach in this exhibition is that even under these restrictive immigration quotas, the United States in most years between 1933 and 1945 comes nowhere close to even issuing the number of visas that it could have under this restrictive law. So it under issues uh, visas and about 200,000 more visas could have been issued uh, during the Nazi period to Jews living in Germany um, and Jews living under Nazism. That Issuing those visas certainly wouldn't have stopped or prevented the Holocaust, but we could have let in, um, you know, at least another 200,000 refugees during this period. And, and we don't because of uh, deep anti-Semitism at home um, and then um, all the concerns surrounding the Great Depression, the idea that the rhetoric of those immigrants are going to take our jobs. Um, is very present in the 1930s. Go ahead, Michelle. There was also a sentiment that perhaps some of these refugees were Nazis in disguise. And so there was a lot of anti-Semitism masked in fear-mongering at the time, which I think is a theme that we also see today. What did people know about the Nazi party and how it was operating at that point? So I think that's kind of a lot of the discussion uh, that 
we'll have mm-hmm. uh, this evening through film and media, of course, people really did know quite a bit about the fear that people were experiencing and the persecution of Jews in Europe. And now, now Michelle, this is a personal story for you. You are the child of a Holocaust survivor. Your mother and her parents escaped in 1940 from where? Uh, from Vienna, Austria. So they were in and out of hiding, starting on Kristallnacht. Yeah. Um, my grandfather was actually being actively sought by the Nazis, and at least one family member was murdered for suspicion of hiding him. And they were incredibly fortunate to be able to, to obtain some of these very hard-to-get to visas. I actually will probably never know the true story of how that came to be. Um, But certainly it wasn't the case for many of my family members who earlier even than my mother and her parents were able to get out, had the ability to leave, the financial resources to leave, and were not given the opportunity to come into this country. When you grew up after the war, obviously, but is this one of the things that made you wonder how the Holocaust and how the Nazi agenda was portrayed here in the U.S.? Sure. Um, when I, I think I was about 10 years old, I actually discovered a speech that my grandfather had given to a Rotary Club in New York where he mentioned um, concentration camps. And I think I, like most people, didn't think that in 1942, when the speech was given, that anybody in the United States even knew that that was a term or understood what that was. Mm-hmm. And, and here's the speech my grandfather gave about it. Well, let's check in with the history here, Daniel. When were the, the concentration camps actually established? Well, you have uh, you, you need to make a distinction between concentration camps and, and death camps. Mm-hmm. Concentration camps are set up um, as early as 1933 by the Nazis. Dachau is set up in the spring of 1933 and is well reported in the American press as a place that Nazis are sending communists and political opponents. Um, death camps, um, Auschwitz and others, um, are set up. Um, the, the first Helmno in late 1941, actually just around the time of Pearl Harbor, and then by 1942, death camps are many death camps are fully operational. And Americans learn about this through um, newspapers and radio uh, by the, by November of 1942. This is public information in America. Um, as Michelle has said, that the um, the news is out there. Um, it, it doesn't mean, just like today, it doesn't mean that all Americans are paying attention to that news um, or fully understand it or fully uh, believe it. That's Daniel Green, an historian and the curator of Americans and the Holocaust and exhibit at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. I'm also speaking with Michelle Taylor, board member at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, where an event tonight is taking place that is examining how media, film, radio, newspapers influence the U.S. involvement in World War II, specifically in the fight against Hitler and the Nazi agenda in Germany. Let's listen, get a little sense of this. This is Charlie Chaplin's first sound film. And in it, he uses the silent character, the tramp, with his lookalike, a mocking image of Hitler haranguing crowds with jargon. Let's hear a little bit from the final speech. It's sort of an appeal to the audience, both in the in the movie and those watching at home. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power. But they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight 
to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! So this was in 1940, before the U.S. entered the European sphere. This film, The Great Dictator, was this the first of its kind in the U.S.? It wasn't, it wasn't the first of its kind. And, and one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is how does Hollywood take up the, the subject of, of Nazism? Because Hollywood, of course, shapes public uh, perception um, then as it, as it does now of the world. Chaplin makes that film, The Great Dictator, independently from the studio system. So he directly references persecution of Jews, whereas many other popular films at the time, which are deeply anti-Nazi, don't reference Jews. Mm-hmm. Think about maybe the most famous film of the 20th century, Casablanca, which wins Best Picture um, at the Oscar ceremony in 1943. Casablanca is about refugees stranded, waiting to get visas, but there's no mention of Jews in the film. Um, and that's common of, of anti-Nazi films during this era. And it's representative of what's going on in the United States. Americans are deeply anti-Nazi, but they certainly don't want to go fight a war to rescue Jews. They want to fight a war to go save democracy if they want to fight a war at all. And even at the end of that great Chaplin film, you hear him uh, making an impassioned plea on behalf of democracy, not on behalf of Jews. Well, talk a little bit about Hollywood at that time. You know, the the movie industry, all powerful. Um, But as we know, this is a place where many uh, first generation, even second generation Jewish people, you know, made a name. Was there hesitation on the part of the studios to advance an agenda that they thought couldn't be supported by the rest of the United States because of anti-Semitism. I think that's fair to say. Movies are incredibly popular, even during the Great Depression. Um, There's about 130 million Americans in the in the 1930s. And by some accounts, 80 million Americans go to the movies each week um, during the 1930s. So they're 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 affordable, they're popular and they do shape um, public perception. There's also a great market for American movies in Germany in the 1930s. So studio heads are asking themselves, why would we make anti-German films uh, when there's a great market in Germany? No question. I think you also can't um, underplay the whole sort of economic influence and the lack of political will for the United States to act that, you know, Germany provided a lot of economic support in the United States, not just in the film industry. And so that, I think, also participated in creating this reluctance. Well, we're going to take a short break. We're going to continue our conversation with Michelle Taylor and Daniel Green. We're talking about the depictions on American media in film, in newspapers, on radio, of course, a huge medium at the time, of what was going on in Germany, the fight against Hitler, the Nazi agenda, and how it influenced the United States, and especially to enter the war. You are listening to Hungarian Dance Number no. 5 by Johannes Brahms, featured in Chaplin's The Great Dictator. We'll be right back with more of On Second Thought. Stay with us. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Hollywood's golden age and the rise of fascism in Europe were happening at the same time a world apart. Those worlds collided when Hollywood decided to tackle fascism 
in film. An event in Atlanta tonight explores how the Nazi regime was portrayed in American media and movies. The event is called What Were We Watching? Americans' Response to Nazism Through Cinema, Radio, and Media. It's taking place at the Center for Civil and Human Rights. Michelle Taylor is a board member there and former member of the United States Holocaust Memorial Council, and she joins me in the studio. Daniel Green is an historian and curator of Americans in the Holocaust exhibit at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, and he's joining us on the line from Chicago. Before the break, we were talking about how America was hesitant to join in the war in Europe or in Japan. Of course, there was Pearl Harbor. But what was the shift to the U.S. finally deciding to intervene in Europe? Well, it is Pearl Harbor. We declare war on Japan, and a few days later, Hitler declares war on on the United States. Um, even as we intervene, the first, almost the first whole year of the war is the United States joining the Allies fighting in the Pacific. We don't land um, even in North Africa to fight the Nazis until November of 1942. Um, and one of the things that we point out in the exhibition, we try to put the timeline of the Holocaust and the timeline of World War II together. And when you look at those timelines together, you realize things like the United States doesn't land uh, at Normandy until D-Day, June 6th of 1944. By that point, more than 5 million Jews are dead. Mm. Uh, So by the time the United States allies reach um, Europe, we're very, very late in the Holocaust. Um, We ask why in this exhibition rescue of Jews never became a priority for the U.S. military um, and the U.S. government throughout the war. But we also show uh, how far the U.S. troops were from occupied Poland, where most of the death was, was occurring. So we're bombed. We're in it. Hitler's declared war. Now leaders have to get the people behind it. Here's an excerpt we have recruiting support for the war here in America. Let's hear just a little bit of that. Their leaders told them that they were supermen. Herrenfolk, the Nazis called it. The master race, destined to rule all other peoples on Earth. This is what we are fighting. Freedom's oldest enemy. The passion of the few to rule the many. This isn't just a war. This is a common man's life and death struggle against those who would put him back into slavery. We lose it, and we lose everything. So, very direct message. Uh, Earlier, Michelle said something about how the idea that Americans didn't know about the death camps until they were liberated in the final days of the war. But I think there's an alternate vision that we have about what the U.S. did in World War II. We were the good guys. This was the just cause sort of swooping in. The cavalry. The cavalry. So right. is, is, this, is this the kind of messaging that begins to emerge then in 1941? Well, that's actually, that's a Frank Capra film that that you played a, a clip of. Great, great Hollywood directors start to work for the U.S. government. Um, Frank Capra, George Stevens, um, John Ford, John Huston. Capra makes that famous uh, seven-part film called Why We Fight, and it's, it's really intended to educate the soldiers um, who are young uh, boys um, about what we're fighting for. Um, because there's a worry that that the soldiers actually don't know what what we're fighting for, and 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 again, you hear in that clip 
what we're fighting for is to defend democracy. Um, mm-hmm. There's no mention of um, the Nazis' plan to murder all the Jews of Europe, even though that's public information by the time Capra makes that film. Let's hear a note from another popular film. George Orwell famously claimed that all art is propaganda, but not all propaganda is art. And in 1942, we see more propaganda is art. Mrs. Miniver tells a story of a middle-class English family learning to cope with war. Man going to battle, the matriarch Mrs. Miniver... Uh, Greer Garson played her, if I'm remembering, discovering a German soldier in hiding and more. Certainly dramatic scenes that that could reflect life during wartime. Let's hear a clip. Uh, And there is a call to action at the end of this film. This is not only a war of soldiers in uniform. It is a war of the people, of all the people. And it must be fought not only on the battlefield, but in the cities and in the villages in the factories and on the farms, in the home and in the heart of every man, woman, and child who loves freedom. Well, we have buried our dead, but we shall not forget them. Instead, they will inspire us with an unbreakable determination to free ourselves and those who come after us from the tyranny and terror that threaten to strike us down. This is the people's war. It is our war. That's the director, William Wyler himself, of Mrs. Miniver in an authorized biography, you know, talked about propaganda must not look like propaganda. But is this propaganda? Well, you get a direct address. Um, you, in so, to the to the to the viewer in in so many of these films at the end they close you know with a with a tight shot on the protagonist's face telling Americans what we're fighting for whether it's whether it's Mrs. Miniver whether it's the Chaplin uh, clip you played from the Great Dictator Foreign Correspondent another movie about journalists American journalists and their responsibility and the freedom of the press abroad um, you you see this over and over um, throughout. Uh, Hollywood film, but throughout Hollywood anti-Nazi films by um, by the time Americans are at war. So there's certainly a propaganda element to it. Mm. Um, Capra's, I think, uh, Why We Fight even goes further than that um, with its um, being made at the behest of the U.S. government in order to educate soldiers about what we're fighting for. Right. A much more uh, subtle depiction, but still rousing, deeply emotional as Casablanca in 1942. There's that classic scene in the bar when the Germans begin to sing their national anthem and the band is told to play La Marseillaise. Let's hear that. grabs me. <laughs> so, and that film, um, that room of actors is filled with refugees uh, from Europe who are who are in the film. 
Um, they, there's a there's a tight shot of a young blonde woman uh, who whose eyes tear up. That's Madeline LeBeau, who um, only recently uh, passed away. She's a refugee who comes over um, on a ship called the Kwanzaa in the summer of 1940. So I think that all of these clips sort of speak to, though, what it was that motivated us during the war, that we were motivated by a sense of our own national identity and our values being threatened. You know, if you look at Mrs. Minerva, it is the story of how sort of a a typical, relatable, non-Jewish family is affected by the war. What doesn't motivate us is rescuing lives, particularly lives that even here in the United States, we think of as a little bit other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, the relevance of all of this education is to understand what happens whenever we other eyes, when we allow ourselves to think of humanity differently. And, um, you know, we talked earlier about sort of some of the uh, studies that were going on in the United States. People felt like what was happening in Europe was despicable, was horrible. But then when asked what is our willingness to intervene and to actually play a role in preventing that, there was very little will to get involved. So people can understand and even empathize with atrocities that are happening, but that isn't a motivating factor. Well, we are focusing on film because it was so powerful and obviously we can play clips from them. But of course, this was, you know, radio was a huge medium at the time and also newspapers. You mentioned that there were headlines in November of 1942 talking about the death camps. Some of them buried, let's say, uh, not, not exactly the lead stories. How were newspapers? And of course, there were so many local newspapers at that time that people relied on in the United States talking about what was going on in Germany. The the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington launched a project years ago um, called History Unfolded, which asked citizen historians across the country, students, history buffs, to go into their local uh, libraries and historical societies and look at how newspapers in their own communities were covering the threat of Nazism. And we've found it, it, the, 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 the response from the public has been fantastic. And what we found is uh, that many key events um, about the persecution and murder of Europe's Jews were covered across the country, certainly in Atlanta and and smaller communities, uh, much smaller communities than Atlanta um, across the country. Um, sometimes those stories weren't front page news items, um, but there were there were moments where they were. And hi- historians have. I think too long relied on asking, what did the New York Times say about this? But, you know, most Americans in the 1930s didn't didn't read the New York Times. They Mm -hmm. read their they read their local papers. And for those who were reading carefully, um, they had access to a lot of information about the threat of Nazism. It doesn't mean that they should be blamed for not always connecting the dots or not seeing that genocide was going to come before before it came. But we can't tell a story um, that says, oh, well, Americans just didn't know and they didn't have access to the information. And in, in fact, they did have access to information. I, I do think it's important to point out, though, that there wasn't the term genocide didn't exist at that time. Right. It wasn't so until we didn't, after the war. Exactly. We didn't have anything really in our vernacular to understand the scope of what was taking place. And, you know, certainly right. we genocide can... Is coined, right. Right. It's coined by a Jewish refugee, Raphael Lemkin, mm-hmm. um, in, in 1944. 
um, to give a to give a name to a crime that that seemed unimaginable. And you're right that that when we when we don't have a name for something, it becomes much harder to understand. And this is a flourishing era for radio reporting. We think of CBS radio correspondent Edward R. Murrow, for example, there on the front. Murrow takes to the airwaves in December of 1942, just a couple of weeks after um, mass murder becomes public information. And he says what's happening is that millions of Jews are being murdered. Millions of human beings are being murdered because they're Jews. Um, Americans hear that from Murrow on CBS radio in December of 1942. And, and a really harrowing moment is when Murrow goes to Buchenwald in April of, of 1945. Um, we'll talk about this at, at the program tonight. Uh, Murrow tours Buchenwald with a, a survivor who, who walks him around the camp. Um, and it's a harrowing 10-minute broadcast um, that's actually easily accessible for visitors to listen to on, on the web, too, if they just Google it. Um, but he, he says, for most of what I'm seeing, I have no words. Mm-hmm. But I think it was particularly important for his audience to hear him say the words that human beings were being killed because they were Jews, not that Jews were being murdered. And did that represent a shift in coverage after someone like Edward R. Murrow says it? You know, it's often that in these kind of situations, the floodgates open and something becomes a conversation. Yeah, the floodgates don't open in the United States. I mean, what Michelle said about uh, before is, is really central to... So many things that the Holocaust Memorial Museum does, asking a difficult question about, in this case, a difficult question about how come Americans' disapproval doesn't translate into a will to action on behalf of the victims. Mm. Um, And you see this all the way along. This war is never about saving Jews. And when the war ends and there are stranded Jewish refugees across Europe, um, it, it's not that there's some huge groundswell of support in America to let those displaced persons in. Even if you look at, you know, the second half of 1945, 1946, 47, Americans still don't want to let displaced persons in, even after they've they've seen the atrocities of the Holocaust in Life magazine and other popular publications. So um, that that gap between disapproval and a will to action is a very troubling fact about Americans' response to to Nazism that remains all the way along, really no matter what we learn, or even if we learn something from someone who has the, you know, gravitas and authority of Edward R. Murrow. Mm. Well, as Michelle said earlier, she's drawing this to the present. I mean, we all saw photographs, videos, sometimes made on cell phone cameras of, you know, refugees coming from Syria or North Africa uh, on the Mediterranean Sea, some of them drowning until we see a photograph of a little boy washed up on shore in Turkey. That's the thing that grabs us. But still, what brings people to action? Well, I think, so I sit on the Committee on Conscience for the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, where we look at modern-day atrocity and genocide prevention. And I will tell you that we have sort of come to realize that, yes, people care when they see that picture, but that isn't really what inspires people to act. That when we start talking, though, about the economic repercussions in Europe of 5 million more refugees coming out of Syria, that's when leaders in the world start to pay attention. Mm. So, you know, I think that if we really want to make a difference when it comes to preventing atrocities around the world, we have to find those things that create the political will to act. And it is not always 
the humanitarian suffering. But that's still Europe. That's still half a world away to many people who are, you know, Absolutely. sitting in America. Absolutely. We are very insulated from what's happening. And that makes it, I think, harder to find the will to act. Well, Michelle Taylor, Daniel Green, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Michelle Taylor is currently a board member at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights and former member of the United States Holocaust Memorial Council. And Daniel Green, an historian and curator of Americans in the Holocaust exhibit. That's currently at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. But there is a traveling portion of this, and the event in Atlanta tonight is called What Were We Watching? Americans' Response to Nazism Through Cinema, Radio, and Media. A free event beginning at 7 at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. There's more information on the event at gbbnews.org. We're going to leave you with the theme from the film The Pianist. That's Chopin's Nocturne in C-sharp major, performed here by Janusz Olejniczek. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and The Raven Taylor. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Don Smith is our editor. And Amy Kiley's senior producer. Sari Shariari is managing editor for GPB News. I'm Virginia Prescott. Please join us again tomorrow for more of On Second Thought. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.